Welcome to Radioactive Magazine. With us now are Don Fitz and Barbara Chicherio. They will describe their experiences living with a, through a flood. I'm Chris Mann. Spencer Graves is with us also to provide more, to pose more general questions about whether the risks of floods are increasing due to climate change and how to learn more about the risks at a particular location. So welcome, Don and Barbara. Where are you? Where do you live? Well, we're in our our previously flooded house, right next to the River De Pere, um, in University City, Missouri. You recently lived through a flood. That flood was July the twenty sixth, and as I recall, it had been really, really hot, like a week and a half before that hot day after hot day. And we were actually in the process of moving into the house that got flooded. So I, I woke up, it rained that night. I wasn't sleeping in this house. We were sleeping in our uh, old house. And I thought, oh my gosh, the air is clear and um, it's cool. And it was great. And I had coffee and I turned on the news and then I thought, uh-oh, because they described the, the flooding. And I told Don, I'm going to run over to Dartmouth and the house we're in now. And um, boy, when I came down the street, first of all, I couldn't get in one side of the street because there was still a lake at the end of the street. So then I went around to the other's opening to our street and walked in and there were cars everywhere. Everybody's car floated that had parked on the street. They were, it was just chaos. So then... I walked and then I was like, oh no, no. So I came up the steps, I came inside and everything looked fine. I thought, well, that's good. So then I went to the basement and it was really bad. And the water was all the way, we had eight feet of water in the basement. It was all the way up to the top step. And by that afternoon, it was all gone. It was truly a flash flood. So the damages would be that everything in your basement uh, was waterlogged. Um, and floating. Yeah, Don can describe because what we had done was move his library and his office and all of his materials into the basement. And it, so we might want to talk about that. Yeah, so so I it was all the books that I had saved up over more than half a century, um, all the lecture notes that I had saved from classes that I taught, uh, all of the folders from social justice movements that I've been involved in since the Vietnam War era. I want to say one more thing, which I didn't understand about flooding, but financially it is just devastating because everything down there was destroyed, which was our HVAC, our water heater, our boiler, because we have um, radiators, washer and dryer, all of it was gone. And then after that, just replacing that was tremendously expensive. Then you have to have people come in. Well, then you have to get it cleaned out, which we actually had a lot of friends that came over and helped. Then you have to have it demolded. Then you have to have the walls pulled out. I mean, it just was th thing after thing of very expensive work to get back in. Mm -hmm. And the different, this is why it's so devastating to people that don't have a lot of resources. We were lucky, I mean, we're a lot poorer than we were, but we were able to kind of work through that. There were people that lost everything, that were in rental houses, that they were left with nothing. And so, of course, 
all of these disasters, in which I think we'll talk about later, this is this is a climate. This was a climate event. Um, it affects people with the with the least abilities to cope with it in terms of resources the most. Yeah, and I, I just want to follow up on what Barbara said about low income people and how it really hurts them. A lot of folks will say, "Well, listen, the government paid for them to live in a hotel." And, and it's like the problem solved. And it's that's not the problem. That's not solving the problem. First of all, low income people, many do not have car insurance because they cannot afford it. So consequently, when people have the, many people on our street, almost everybody in our street, but us, because our cars were parked someplace else, almost everybody had their car paid for by their automobile insurance. Low income people, that doesn't happen for them. So they have no way to get around because they, they they don't have any car and the bus system in St. Louis is atrocious. So the problem is what do you have to if you how do you get to your job in the morning if your job is 10 miles away from work? How do you get your kids to school if your kids live in a different part of town? And if, if they put you in a hotel, or even if you have family who helps out, the family may not live right next to where you were. And it's, so it's really hard to get that, get there. You live in a hotel. Hotels are not, um, are, you know, a motel. They're not equipped to handle things like laundry, food, and that for multiple people who are survivors of a flood. If you have two uh, washing machines, you know, for a hundred people, hundred families in the in the motel, that's fine for people on vacation. It does not handle people who are living there. And how do you get? You have to have all of your food. You're now eating at a restaurant three meals a day and you can barely afford to buy the food, you know, to cook it yourself and you have no ability to cook food. So it's to say that the low income families were helped out by giving them a place to live just does not. I mean, this is what I learned from talking to low income people. It just doesn't cut it. It's it's not it's not really solving the problem. What happened next? You know, I can't really remember. Um, Don, has, Don got on the computer and put, you put out an email, right? To, yeah, I asked people to help us. So, so the first thing we did was to help people. People came in and helped clean out the mess. We and, had 20 people. Yeah, coming. 15 to 20 people, you know, 10 or any one time, but people came during the day. And one of the reasons I did that was because I was talking to neighbors and somebody mentioned the problem of mold. And I thought, oh, damn, we got a real problem because I know that once mold sets in, it grows very rapidly. And we had drywall all throughout the basement. Plus, we had uh, the the bookcases, which were made out of composition board, you know, sawdust with glue. Mold sets into those. And if you let the mold grow, the mold would go up from the basement to the first floor. And then you would have even more, uh, more of a problem. So you have to get the mold out right away. Don and Barbara, you all uh, started talking to your neighbors. How did that evolve? We had some discussions, and, and one thing that helps, helped a lot was that we know Bob Chris, who's a professor emeritus of geology at Washington University. And so he really is one of the best experts on floods in the state, and so probably the best expert. And so I talked to him a lot about problems of flooding and what to do. Other people wanted to hear about that. So we set up a webinar uh, to, and, and contact the people across this country to invite them to discuss things. Through this discussion process, you went on a field trip with Robert Chris, and, and you found a difference between flooding, flash flooding and flooding. 
So what, what are the differences? Yeah, let me do that first and then Don can describe the um, field trip. So in 1993, I don't, you were living in St. Louis, Chris, weren't you in 93? Do you remember the mm -hmm. big flood in the Mississippi? So yes. that flood started way up north and it didn't even rain during the flood, if you remember. And so it was a terrible flood, but it was a slow flood. You know, kind of the the river the the river uh, depth crept up very slowly, uh, as opposed to a flash flood. So the flood that we experienced in July was literally an eight hour rain event with. 11 inches of rain, most of it in the first two hours, and it fell right on top of us. So these small tributaries, which I think are tributaries to the Missouri River, mm -hmm. not the Mississippi, and we have, we live next to the River De Pere. Deer Creek is another one that runs through St. Louis. Those are highly affected, and, and they're, and Bob Chris says River De Pere is the flashiest stream in Missouri. It rises very quickly for a couple reasons, but mostly it's been so, as he, he described, squeezed through the sewer district, and it's a storm sewer, basically. It was a river. It was a little river, and now it's been channelized and concreted in, and, and uh, where we live, and then Don will talk about our field trip, we're right across the street from where there's this giant tunnel the, the River De Pere is forced underground and it goes under Forest Park. So it's been very, very much uh, adjusted with by humans over the years. So that's created a problem. So it's an old problem, which is, you know, what's happened to it over the last hundred years and a newer problem with climate change, which, you know, it rains all the time, but, but climate has made these experience is so extreme so yeah I, I, there's multiple causes of floods and especially flash floods that their primary characteristic is they there's a lot of water in a brief period of time and then the water recedes it goes back very quickly in other words the water that, that we experienced by the time we got up in the morning and, and walked down to the house at 6 30 or 7 it had already started to recede and by the end of the day it was gone it had been you know seven and a half to eight feet in our basement that's the nature of a flash flood uh climate change is part of that but the biggest part of that is um uh, a corporate development and uh idiotic decisions by groups like the Car army corps of engineers which has decided over the last over a hundred years they've spent putting cement on the sides of, of uh, rivers and that is what causes, that's what intensifies flash floods and makes them much, much worse than they, they would be otherwise. In other words, most rivers have wide banks on each side of them. And so for some bizarre reason, the Army Corps of Engineers said the best way to handle a flood is to have steep sides with cement. And then what that means is that you the water cannot soak into the ground. It, it flows you know, very fast, and it builds up very high, very rapidly. So if you'd if you would have a three or four foot flood, then suddenly you have like an eight foot flood. And so it's a terrible idea to put cement by a river bank. And then they built the even worse than that was to put a tunnel and force the river to go underground. Well, the problem with the flood that hit us was that the river 
um, the underground tunnel could not absorb the amount of water that was flowing through. And part of the reason there's so much water again was that there was concrete on each side of the river. Of the, it, it's usually a creek, not a river. It's usually a little creek. But there's no ability of the, of the, of the land to absorb it. We're talking with Barbara Chiquirio and Don Fitz about the ex experience they had in St. Louis uh, with a flash flood experience. What is permeability? So that's the other uh, problem. You know, we talked about the climate event. We talked about the channelization and concreting in of this river to pair. And um, through Bob Chris, we've learned a lot about how much of University City is actually paved over. And 43% of our small little municipality has hard, some kind of hard top. And he said that's one of the, um, or maybe the most impermeable surface for any municipality in the whole state of Missouri. So that's the other problem because um, the, the water has no place to go and it's not absorbed. And that's a, one of the things that we're kind of, that we're working on is an ordinance going forward to um, decrease or, you know, to, we need, you know, in terms of when there's new building, we just had a big Costco put in on Olive Street, not too far from us. And it's just another huge slab of concrete. So that really needs to be addressed, not just in University City, but throughout the St. Louis area. So. Yeah, what, what my experience tells me is likely to happen is that when we go to the city council for University City and the county council for St. Louis Council, they'll probably tell us that you know, we're really concerned. They're very sorry and they really want to move forward. And then when we talk about specific things to be done, they'll either do absolutely nothing or they'll promise to do it and then not do it or they'll promise to do it, start to do it and then stop doing it. But because the, the thing is, when you have a big corporation, it wants to have a huge parking lot. It wants everybody to own a car and they want everybody to drive there. And so you, you have these huge shops and a huge parking lots and they want to cover them over with cement. And so the permeability is a real serious problem because it, it puts citizens in direct conflict to corporations. Talk about the open spaces concept in dealing oh, with flooding. Okay. Well, the, the open spaces is basically the, the flip side of permeability. Mm -hmm. There's an open spaces council in St. Louis that wants to have large areas, you know, that you have nothing there uh, you know, except the natural environment, which is trees and shrubs and things like that, maybe plant some native grasses that are uh, that have evolved to absorb the have deep roots and absorb the water. And they're the opposite of having cement everywhere. Mm -hmm. And so the, the nature of a river, the best thing to reduce flooding is to have not the steep banks of the river, but the, of the, the gently sloping banks on each side, maybe parks on each side of a river. So that as you have a, if when you have a lot of rain, the it, it's not all channeled into one area, but it's spread across. You cannot have buildings right up to the edge of a river bank and except expect things not to be destroyed during a flash flood. Spencer, what have you learned about whether climate change is increasing the risks of floods in our areas? 
So weather is a classic example of what scientists call a chaotic system. That basically means that seemingly minor changes can have dramatic results, like changing weather cycles that have been stable for centuries. This is discussed in the Wikipedia articles on article on chaos theory. Recent news seems to suggest that uh, floods have been increasing in frequency and severity, and that's uh, documented in the Wikipedia article on climate change. Okay. Uh, Barman Don, any comments? Climate change is extremely important, but we can really we can really make a difference if we could would change the structure of our urban areas right. and reduce the cement along the sides of riverbanks. We could really have a tremendous reduction in the damage of flash floods. Mm -hmm. Yeah, really, we should not be living here. I mean, this whole area should be an open space. Uh, agreed. Agreed. Yeah, <laughs> I think I think that's a, a problem that's been documented for uh, decades, and yeah. there's been a consensus for decades that among civil engineers and people concerned about these kinds of things that uh, that they should development should not be allowed on floodplains. That's right. Thank you. Well, of course, the the thing is, we're not really in a floodplain. You know, when when we were buying this house, uh, if I'd have had a choice between earthquake insurance and flood insurance. I would have said, let's spend our money on earthquake insurance uh, because there have been earthquakes in this region much more recently than there have been floods where, where we live. I mean, like nobody on the block where we were flooded could remember anything like this ever happening. Right. You know, there's no record of it for 100 years, you know, that, that this has existed. So it's... Um, uh, you know, yeah. it's a perfect, horrible storm of, you know, like I said, what's happened in the past in terms of the way building and construction and development, and now these climate events and the two together. It's just, it's, it's not good. Right. So, for those uh, people listening, how can how can people learn about their own area? The U.S. Federal Emergency Management Agency, or FEMA, provides tools to help people evaluate the flood risk any place in the U.S. Unfortunately, they're hard to find and use. So I've uh, um, uh, added a discussion of how to do this with the description of this episode of Radioactive Magazine. You can go to kkfi.org and then click News and Public Affairs and then Radioactive Magazine. Okay. And, and I think... Yeah, USGS also does an incredible job on ma mapping and and ma mapping streams and floodplains in uh, watersheds. So there's again, I don't know that I could easily um, read those, but they are available. Yeah, well, I found I found a tool on on um, on the FEMA website that. Um, if I went to the right link, um, msc.fema.gov slash portal slash search allowed me to enter a street address or longitude and latitude, and it would bring up a map. Mm -hmm. And a couple of minutes later, it would um, begin to show uh, possible flood risks. I um, looked for um, flood risk near 
KKFI's broadcast um, studio at 3901 Main in Kansas City, Missouri, and I found um, found that um, that of course that's that happens to be a high area, but um, a few um, a little ways away, there's a there's a major thoroughfare that um, that uh, it would show that was could be flooded. Climate change is changing the data that the U.S. as uh, the U.S. Geological Service that that they put up. They the, it's changing so rapidly they can't keep up with it. So what the dangers I- the dangers getting uh, more free. Like like I said, our neighborhood was not considered threatened. I want to uh, respond to something else that, uh, that Chris was saying about you know get, getting more trees and more green space in in an area. Before this happened, I, I taught environmental psychology at Washington University, and I would always tell students in class, uh, there's research showing that trees have a very calming effect. And one of the many reasons that people are nervous living in cities is that so many areas are cemented over. And as a matter of fact, once my favorite study that I, I, I like to talk about research is someone who's had hyperactive kids and would take half of them out to a, a street, you know, where there was cement, and the other half would take them on a walk through a, uh, a, a urban forested area. And the children who went through the area with trees were calmed down as much as a dose of Ritalin, you know, for, for, for the hyperactive kids. So having a green space in cities is not just good for the environment, it's good for a human psyche. You know, it's good for your mental health. And so uh, th- there's really a deep, the main thing I want people to understand is there's a deep incompatibility between the search for corporate profits mm-hmm. and the search for people to have good mental health. You, you, you really can't have both at the same time. So the, the best thing that citizens can do is to be very active, both in their neighborhood and the political level, and, and work for serious political change in terms of how urban areas are structured and not give in to the corporate demands to put cement over everything. Mm-hmm. In my judgment, we need corporations. We do not need corporations on welfare. We need uh, an educated, informed public, and we cannot have that when the media is owned and controlled to benefit the major corporations. We're about running out of time. Uh, last two questions, and then Barb and Don, you can, if you have any more comments. Um, what are you suggesting that common people can do to prepare for a flash flood uh, ahead of time and have have both of you reco- sort of recovered your routines? I don't think we've recovered. <laughs> no, we, we, we. I, Well, and plus we were moving. So it was moving stressful and then we had a flood in the middle of the move. And um, then we had to rebuild, then we, you know. So no, we have not recovered. And our schedules are just, you know, like yesterday, I spent hours cleaning, you know, I had somebody come to clean out the house we're moving out of. So, um, and we lost so many things and we don't know where things are and where is it? No, no, we have not recovered. But I think um, the thing that the takeaway for me is that it's, Everybody talks about how climate change is going to be affecting, you know, but everybody's being affected personally. I mean, I know so many people 
you know, my cousin was in California where they're having uh, mudslides and had a mudslide at her house. And I know so many people that it personally are being affected um, by climate. And I just, we as a species have to learn a better way to live on the planet. Or, or, or we're not going to make it. We're going to take everything down with us. And one of my takeaways that was very frustrating to me was the Missouri Botanical Garden had a permeable parking lot. Chris, I don't know if you remember that, but it was pavers that were permeable. The last time I was there, it was all concreted over. Mm. And I asked what happened to, you know, to the pavers, the permeable pavers. And they said they had they wanted they went back to the concrete because they couldn't control the weeds coming up through the holes. And um, so that's not a very positive note to end on. <laughs> 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 but it's it's you know for I think it's a species it's going to have to be a complete mind switch about how we perceive ourselves in this world. I mean, all of us. We really have to. I mean, these are really major changes we're talking about. I'm sorry, I'm just kind of on that. <laughs> okay. Don, any final thoughts? Yeah, there, I mean, we have to work on both the things that you can do as an individual and the things that you can do as a society. And as individuals, we can do things like uh, we had our, our front our front yard was basically clay, really hard clay, which is about almost as impermeable as concrete. So it, we had that dug up and turned over so it's a lot looser soil, and that helps. Rain bell barrels on the roof help enormously. Plants uh, that absorb water, you know, have deep roots are much better uh, than than uh, ha having extravagant flowers come in that ha with that that have very shallow roots. So there's lots of things that individuals can do. Those, of course, are going to have a minuscule effect when one person does them. It's not even measurable. Uh, you certainly can make laws on a larger scale. And what you really need to do. I mean, those are those are things that you want to do. So it, it shows you're walking the walk, you're not just talking the talk. But on, on a really more practical level, we need to look for municipal and statewide and federal laws that really change things and require building, require uh, uh, more permeable surfaces, you know, require trees, require open spaces. Uh, uh, by people, uh, you know, you can't just say, tell people, okay, you're not supposed to live here in the floodplain. You have to have a plan for buying people out and helping them to move to a place which is comparable to the place that they're in now. So we really need strength. You know, you need to follow up with politicians, but at the same time, you know, don't don't trust them. You need to that somebody can promise one, something one day and do something completely opposite, you know, after the people stop screaming at them. Uh, and the corporations always have money to pour into politicians, always. After after the citizens have been exhausted, the, the corporations still pour money into lobbyists. And so it's really hard, And but, but changing things at the global, at the uh, city, state, national and global level is really what's critical. Well, we've been talking with Don Fitz and Barbara Chirio and Spencer Graves about flooding. Don and Barbara survived a flood and have since worked to increase awareness and preparations for flooding. I'm Chris Mann. Thanks for listening.